Hello and welcome to episode 64 of the Romantic About Baseball podcast. I am your host, Adam C. McKinnon. Jim Passan is off this week, and we will get to my guest interview with David Krell in just a little bit. He wrote a really interesting book, um, 1962, Baseball in America in the Time of JFK. Uh, Really interesting book, really interesting interview. But first, I wanted to talk about uh, something that I have been kind of watching a little bit uh, from a distance. And, you know, I just kind of wanted to dump some thoughts out there on it. We're talking specifically about the Oakland A's, uh, bring, uh, the, the situation. We'll call it a situation for right now. Um, in Oakland, uh, in regards to their new stadium. And like so many things, this has come and gone through the headlines and things of that nature. But uh, basically what it boils down to is that the Oakland A's are uh, basically demanding the uh, city of Oakland to uh, authorize the use of the land uh, in an area called Howard, basically build a Howard, uh, the new stadium, a new multi-use stadium, kind of like reminiscent of like what's in Atlanta, what's in some other stadiums, like not just like a stadium itself, but, you know, multi-use land around it in an area called Howard Terminal in Oakland. And they're saying that if they don't build it, they'll leave. There's lots of feelings on this. And I think that this may be, this is the sort of classic sports franchise brinksmanship that has been brewing and going on for some time now, not just in baseball, but this is a baseball show. So I'm going to go ahead and, and, uh, and you can keep it to that. But you know, we talk about the uh, the taxpayer funded stadium really came to sort of you know in, at the time came to a head in Atlanta when Cobb County taxpayers were on the hook for four hundred million dollars to build the Atlanta Braves new stadium after they had just really kind of relocated in, in nineteen ninety six to uh, what used to be the uh, Olympic Stadium, which was Turner Field. Um, so it didn't feel necessary, but you know, there's reasons and we'll get to that. Uh, before that it was Washington, DC, Washington, DC, uh, put in a, got a 693, almost $700 million to build what nationals park when they came to town, uh, Arlington, Texas, a billion dollars to build the greatest little warehouse in Texas. Uh, you know, it, Globe Life Field for the for the Texas in Arlington for the Texas Rangers, possibly maybe the ugliest stadium in MLB. I'm not really sure. I'll probably have to put a poll out on that. But keeping all that in mind, the Howard Terminal, according to project that the A's are saying, you know, boom or bust on, uh, could according to the San Francisco Chronicle. Uh, would put taxpayers in that area on the hook for $855 million. So roughly the second highest taxpayer tab uh, for a major league stadium in recent memory. So it begs the question, why? Why is this, why, uh, why does this keep happening? Why are 
baseball franchises continuing to operate in this manner. And I feel like the baseball franchises are even more, um, uh, I guess you could say unforgivable in a way, because for example, baseball operates a little differently than some of the other sports that have things like salary caps, uh, maybe not as strong of rep- of a sort of divide between say ownership and players. Uh, I'm not an expert on that. Uh, so you'll have to maybe kind of, I, I may have to be fact checked on that, but ultimately this is a organization of major league baseball that operates with virtual impunity in terms of financial transparency. They're not required to open their books to anybody. They're not held accountable by anyone. You know, this isn't like, um, this isn't like an, or, an organization that we could say, oh, well, we're just not going to go to the games. Of course you're going to go to the games. We're all going to go to the games. We can't even go to a minor league game because they're affiliated with Major League Baseball. Their talons are so deep into the game of baseball. The organization has become synonymous with the game. So I can't, so I don't know that anything sort of productive is going to come of this because now you have a city at odds with the, with the franchise. A franchise, by the way, which originated in Philadelphia, then went to Kansas City, and now is in Oakland, as in now is like threatening to relocate again. And the sexy topic right now is, well, where do they go? You know, if they relocate, do they go to Nashville? Do they go to the Montreal? Uh, you know, there's tons of, you know, do they go to Las Vegas? I think that would be terrible. But let's say, and not because Las Vegas is a terrible place. Don't get me wrong. I think it's just what's in, I mean, I don't think I need to really educate anyone that maybe listens to this that, you know, what Las Vegas is known for and, you know, baseball's relationship with that thing, gambling, is complicated to say the least. So pushing past that, how are we, uh, this is a team, okay, that since 2010 to 2019, because I'm not counting 2020 and 2021, those are weird years. Uh, from 2010 to 2019, they have never finished higher than 23rd in a ten, in total attendance by team in a year. So, so you think, oh, this is a bad team. You know, they're not putting together a winning product. Well, they are. They've been to the postseason five times in that 2010 to 2019 spam. This is a team, by the way, that is constantly hampered by low payroll. This is a team where their stadium, the Oco Coliseum is widely regarded as one of the worst, if not among the worst facilities in major league baseball. So it's not like it's, it's not like it's unjustified for the A's to say, Hey, you know, from a business perspective, Hey, you know what? Like, Clearly, you're not appreciating the product that we're putting on the field, so we want to relocate. Okay, that's fine. But just do that. Just do that. Don't do this brinksmanship stuff that threatens to put... Because now if the Howard... Think about this. If the the A's get what they want, if they get Howard Terminal, and the taxpayers are on the hook for that $855 million, if that turns out to be accurate... Think about think about a team with the second highest taxpayer bill 
and the second lowest attendance in baseball. That's not a sustainable business. Like you have the you have the uh, second most expensive storefront on the block and the second lowest customer traffic of all the stores on that block. That's maybe an oversimplification, but it's kind of how business works at a very core level in the, in the, in any sort of for-profit customer facing us being the customers business. You need customers to make your business operate like any good business. But that's, you know, and on top of that, to do this on the tail end of a pandemic, when this $855 million, you mean to tell me that if I'm a citizen of Oakland, or if I'm a citizen of that area, I'm not thinking, man, these tax dollars could probably be put to better use than building a stadium for a team I don't, uh, that I don't care about. Because I'm not saying there's that no one in the Bay Area or no one in general cares about the A's. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that based on the empirical evidence, not as many people care about the A's as other franchises. And about and if Major League Baseball is the pinnacle of the game of which it is of which it portrays itself to be, then you know, this is a team that if we were going if we were going to relegate team or like sort of demote teams based on uh, attendance records, this team would have been demoted like four or five times over. They're drawing like they're drawing pitiful numbers by comparison to teams that uh, are in are in markets that are like comparably sized. So I don't necessarily. Uh, I don't believe, I don't necessarily disagree with the concept of them relocating. I think that there are cities and places that, uh, maybe are going to be more welcoming. You know, Montreal has often come up in conversation, uh, Nashville, you know, the Braves cover a lot of territory in the Southeast. I don't think it would be a bad idea to have a team in say an up and coming city like Nashville, um, I know I would say a city like Austin, but you know, they've got enough teams in Texas already. So to, and, and for a part of the country to have that sort of major league representation, I think would be a good thing. But if you're, you're talking, what I'm saying is just do it or just don't do it. Don't do this brinksmanship stuff. Don't do this thing where you're going to drive up the, uh, a bill to the city of Oakland when you already know what's going to happen. Major League Baseball continues to operate as a business where that we have to just believe them when they say, oh, we're broke. We can't afford this. We can't afford that. You've got $30 billion plus companies inside of an organization that's worth a billion dollars in and of itself. And you're going to, and you're just going to walk around saying, well, you know, we can't really afford that. We need the taxpayers to pay for it. At some point, and I don't know when, the economic model of which baseball is being built has to be revised. And until then, and I make this statement, until then, I don't really want to hear the whole keep politics out of sports or keep politics out of baseball. 
because taxpayer money is literally politics. So until your, if your house is built with political money, which taxpayer money is political money, then politics are in baseball. That's, that's how this works. That's how government works. If I pay for it as a taxpayer, it becomes politics. So it shouldn't be, but that's just how American democracy works. So I, I don't to, to, to how you can't have this insulated world of like, Oh, well, baseball, you know, keep politics out of my baseball. Well, that's the problem is that it, it, it can't, it can't be that way when we continue to pay for stadiums with taxpayer money. And a lot of these stadiums that they're building, you know, they do their research and things like that. We're talking about a, a stadium that stadiums being built in areas where people of color and people that are being marginalized and excluded from the game are paying the taxes for the game that they're being marginalized from. So until we start so that until we start to see baseball actually take some personal response financial responsibility, politics will belong in baseball. They have to be. They're built on the stadiums, the fields in which they play are built on politics. So until you know in the in the A's situation just sort of culminates in that because now we're looking at a, a, a by all means, a, a poorly, it's like a well-run organization on one facet, but an absolutely poorly run organization on the other. Because on one hand, you have a team that is given so little, but then does a fair amount with it. So on the, their on-the-field product is very well-run. Imagine the Oakland A's staff, the, the staff that has produced five postseason appearances with such limited payroll, Imagine them going to a city that wants them that in a and under ownership that will fund Billy Bean and will fund these operations uh, that will fund ma- Oakland management. Imagine that. You'd have a per- you'd have a powerhouse organization pretty much off the bat. And a, a well you know, a well-oiled machine from there. This is a team that builds up from the ground. You wouldn't have to really have these conversations. Like when are they going to trade Matt Chapman? What do they do with Matt Olson? Like, I don't see how staying in Oakland is beneficial. So I don't disagree with, uh, the idea of the A's relocating. What I disagree with is the, again, the brinksmanship, the sort of just why, you know, give us this or we will leave, then leave. It's pretty clear again, by the evidence, you're not as wanted there as you would be elsewhere. So ultimately, you know, they've been in the Coliseum since 1968. It's probably time for this franchise to either stay in Oakland and work out some kind of work out a less ostentatious, less over the top deal. Cause I'm not and on the other end too. Like, yeah, I'm not saying the, this Coliseum is a good facility. Maybe you relocate somewhere else, but don't put the taxpayers on the hook for it 
or if you do, maybe you do it in a more, at least a more subtle way than throwing out $855 million to build a stadium for a team that nobody wants to see, you know? Uh, so it, it's sort of apropos that David, you know, David Krell is the, is the guest interview because his book is about the 1960s. The sixties are an era of expansion. And I think that we're looking at a potential, you know, of expansion and change in baseball and maybe, uh, maybe not the same kind, you know what I mean? Cause in baseball, the teams were moving West, you know, the twins, the senators, the Colt 45s, the Montreal Expos, the Royals, the Kansas city Royals. They, these are teams that sort of spawned up in the sixties. Well, you know, now they're talking about Nashville, Las Vegas. I feel like we're hitting a time. It's not just moving the franchises. It's just not, not just adding teams to the league. It's growing the game in a way that the people grow, we're trying to grow it too don't resent it at the same time. Because I can tell you this, if I live in Oakland and I'm not an ACE fan and there's a, based on the evidence, again, there's a pretty damn good chance that's true. I'm going to be paying for a stadium that I don't want for a team I don't like. And that's not an effective way to grow the game. Now, let's counterpoint, let's say, you know what? Maybe it's time to move it to Nashville. Maybe it's a time to move it to, I'm not going to say Las Vegas, but like, let's just say we move it somewhere where the game is wanted, where it's yearned for. You know what? Maybe, maybe you get a different result. Maybe you grow the game, you add an exciting franchise that will spend money, that will bring in new fans, rather than have, baseball is so, MLB is so in love with its own legacy. This isn't Brooklyn in 1957. You know, this, this is not the same thing anymore. The game has waned from the spotlight of America since that time. And to continue to act like it hasn't, I think, is, is a sort of reflection of how out of touch Major League Baseball is with itself. Because in our, it's sort of that inflated sense of self-importance. Like, we know the A's. We know their history. We know... You know the, uh, you know the 1980s, we uh, the late 1980s, the early 1970s. Billy Martin comes to town. We remember all of these things as fans of the game, but the differences between that and say like Brooklyn in the 50s is that Brooklyn in the 50s, the the game had such a front and center seat in a in the country's culture. It no longer has that, but yet the operate. But when they do this stuff, when the Oakland A's do this to the city of Oakland, if I'm on the, if I'm in any kind of position of power in the city of Oakland, I would immediately say, let them walk. I'm not saying that's what's going to happen, but I think it's ridiculous for a team that's you know so far down the uh, the attendance totem pole to be making demands of such a high magnitude on the tail end of a pandemic when every dollar is trying to be spent to keeping people alive instead now we're now we're doing this whole thing again so ultimately my stance on that is 
relocate the A's, but just do it. Don't make us sit through another bullshit process of, you know, this and that between the city and the, and the team. You're the, you're one of the lowest attended teams in all of baseball. I don't understand why you don't want to just leave. If I'm in management or ownership, nobody comes to the games. Why are you holding on to this at this point? You know, I, I make Oakland, you know, put a minor league team there, you know, and I'm sorry. And I am sorry to any of my A's friends or A's listeners. This is no disrespect on the team nor on your fandom. You're entitled to that. And, and it's totally fair to feel that sort of like pang, like that emotional pang there. You're totally right to feel that way. But you as a city deserve better than to have this team, this business, because that's what it is. It, you know, baseball is an entertainment business. You deserve better than to have this business walking around saying, we'll get so many customers if you give us a chunk of your tax money. When clearly the evidence says otherwise. Because what would require is not just, you know, okay, moving to a facility. If you want to go to the Coliseum, that's fine. But that would require the A's when they move to this new stadium. We're basically asking a, a, a uh, the ownership of the A's, part of an entity that is not known for spending money or not known for wanting to spend money, has a very long track record of not doing that to do exactly the opposite. And I ask anyone, are you ready to make that deal with a major league owner? And if the answer is yes, that's fine. You have more faith than I do. But at some point, we got to call it for what it is. Oakland may not want the A's as much as the A's want a stadium. So... That's ultimately how uh, how I'm thinking on that particular situation. Uh, I hope it gets resolved with some kind of tact, and I hope it gets resolved where everyone feels better about it. I don't see how that's going to happen, but, you know, I, guy can dream, right? So uh, coming up, uh, I've got my interview after the break. Um, got my interview with David Krell, excellent uh, author, wrote a really interesting book, and uh, I think it's worth, uh, it's worth listening, so... Check it out. Welcome to another edition of the Romantic About Baseball podcast. I am your host, Adam C. McKinnon, and I am thrilled to be joined by David Krell. Uh, he is here to talk about his latest book, 1962, Baseball in America in the Time of JFK. David, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Adam. And, uh, you know, as a, as a fellow pandemic book club author, uh, I was, uh, I was really, uh, really glad you reached out. And I think the premise of the book is really interesting and we're going to get to that in a minute, but first I want to, I want to know a little bit about your baseball origin story, uh, to steal a question from Rob Nyer and his show. Like where does, where does, uh, where does your story begin with baseball? 
Well, when I was about seven or eight, there was a book called The Story of Baseball by John Rosenberg. And this was produced by Random House. There were different versions between the early 60s and I think the late 70s or early 80s. And I came in at the 74 version. So 73 was the, the last year covered. It's an oversized book. It's for kids. And it covers basically the history of baseball. But every chapter is two, three pages tops. But that's where I got to learn about Babe Ruth and DiMaggio and Williams and Jackie Robinson and Mantle. And then as you get older, your reading tastes, your reading tastes get more sophisticated. So by the time you're a teenager, you're reading The Boys of Summer and getting into more sophisticated fare. Right. And so did you have a team growing up, a player, like anyone that you were really drawn to? The Mets. Oh, wow. Okay. And Dave Kingman was my favorite player. Dave Kingman. We, we had the same initials. We have the same name. And he was so towering. So when he came to the plate, you knew there was a pretty good chance he was either going to strike out or send the ball over the over the fence. That's, you know, I got to say that is, this is, uh, depending on when we air this, we've recorded 63 episodes of this show and that is the first Dave Kingman reference. So you win the prize, my friend. That is, and I feel like it's a name that should be given the modern style of baseball, a name that should be mentioned more often than it is. I absolutely agree. And my favorite argument starter is that Dave Kingman should be in the hall of fame because he has 442 home runs. It's a bold. That now, is a that is bat- an argument starter. <laughs> batting average is anemic, and his defensive play, some might say, is a liability. But 442 home runs. People make the same argument about Roger Maris. He mm-hmm. wins two MVPs. He was on not just the the Yankees World Series winning team, but he was also on the Cardinals. Right. So. Here's a guy who hit 61 home runs, and some people might have said once upon a time he doesn't belong there, but because of 61 home runs changing the the course of the game and changing history, some people have changed their minds. People I've talked to, people you've talked to at Sabre conferences, at the Cooperstown Symposium, et cetera. Right. It's, it's fascinating. Cause you really do. Yeah. It's, it's, it's about cultural impact and that's a whole nother show. It's a, it, it's a show we've Absolutely. done on the end here plenty of times. Uh, you know, the rabbit hole shall be avoided this time, but I, I don't, I, I agree very much with your premise. Uh, uh, Kingman, I don't know, but I agree with your premise. Um, but let's talk about let's talk about the book. Um, you know the for the the book's title, nineteen sixty two baseball in America in the time of JFK. Now here's the thing uh, in my preparation because if anyone asks, I do fantastic preparation. It's not true, but it's what. But you know, if people ask. Uh, in the uh, I was listening. I was listening to interview reading. You know, reading a little bit, and it's and baseball's right there in the subtitle. But you right. are you argue that you know it's really not a baseball. It's really only at best half a baseball book, right? It's it's a baseball book because baseball is the through line. But the some people are under the impression it's only baseball when baseball and America is right there in the subtitle. 
So a, a good percentage, 50% or more, is about baseball. Now, is it an in-depth play-by-play look at the teams in 62? No, this gives you a lot of detail about the players of the Colt 45s and the Mets, the two expansion teams. I get into the Giants, Dodgers, and Yankees because San Francisco and L.A. both uh, tied, and they had an NL playoff, three games, and the Yankees and Giants played in the World Series to seven games. So I wanted every team to have a chapter. And then if you combine what's in Chapter 1 with what's in Chapter 10, it's not totally baseball in either chapter, but they, if you blend them together, it makes an entire chapter length. So, yeah, it's 50%. And the other 50% is Cuban Missile Crisis, NASA's three Mercury missions, To Kill a Mockingbird, literature that came out that year, other movies that came out that year, Jackie Kennedy and uh, the televised tour of the White House, TV shows that were landmark shows. So, Adam, this is meant to give you a peek into what life was like in 1962. And for listeners who were around in 62 and can remember it fondly, they will remember it in more detail because my hope, and I've already had this happen to me, people coming back and saying, gee, I knew of this, but I didn't know of that detail. I knew about Route 66. I didn't know X, Y, and Z. I knew about John Glenn. I didn't know about X, Y, Z. So that's what I'm hoping to create, that it gives you a time capsule of what life was like with baseball as the undercurrent. And, you know, if I, if I remember hearing you correctly in another interview, you know, the, the chapters are actually broken into months. So, so even if, even if you wanted to make it a baseball book, you know, you really only have a a limited quota of months that you could fill. Exactly. And that, and that's exactly right. So January starts with the groundbreaking for the Astrodome. Mm-hmm. which, as you know, debuted in 65. Not the but, only team to to start their home stadium that year with the Dodgers right. in Los Angeles. Dodger Stadium was a marvel, still is a marvel in my opinion. You had Maury Wills. I, I can only imagine what it was like. I talked to people who were there, and they conveyed such excitement and passion, Adam, when Maury Wills was on first base and you have 40, 45,000 people chanting, go, 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 <laughs> get a green light from Walter Alston. Anytime he was on base, he could run at will. And he right. stole more than 100 bases. That was unheard of back then. Right. And uh, and and it's incredible, too, because you think about just using Wills as an example you know, you, you put the through line from Wills to, you know, to Lou Brock, to, uh, Ricky Henderson, you know, all the way through that, you know, uh, many consider, you know, but, but even then it's just a a grain of sand in the beach of the story Mm -hmm. because, you know, the many consider the 1960s to be one of the more transformative decades in in modern American history, you know, so much happening at one time. And there's no shortage of topics to cover when you're talking about something like that, you know, and you're using this, I mean, even, you know, you could just, and there have been uh, books written just about baseball in the 1960s. And there have been books, many books just written on the cultural events of the 1960s. So when you're dealing with such a wide umbrella, you know, how do you how do you pick which topics you dive into? What 
what is the, uh, you know, what is, what takes precedence in, in a situation like that? Well, I appreciate the question. That's a great question. I wrote this book, or I wrote the book proposal, I should say, in a writer's workshop at a place called Media Bistro, which is a continuing education school. And I had birthed a book called Our Bums about the Brooklyn Dodgers in that workshop. Mm -hmm. So I took it again. And I came up with this great idea to have a baseball book about the Houston Colt 45s and the Mets. I'd seen some scholarship on the Mets, zero on Houston. So I figure I'm going to call this the amazing season based on Casey Stengel's famous clip where he says, amazing, 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 amazing. I'll chronicle both teams and that'll be that. And the instructor who was the instructor in the previous workshop said, books with a broader topic get a broader readership or broader topics get broader readership. And he said, why don't you think about that? So I came home and I Googled and I found dozens of storylines and topics and subtopics. So whittling it down became a problem. And the, the way I solved that, or I think I solved it, was to group topics by month. So in December, that's where all, all of the movies go because the basis of that is To Kill a Mockingbird premieres in December. So I say, okay, well, here are all of the other movies that, that debuted. I talk about literature in chapter 11. I talk about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Obviously, you have to do that. That's in chapter 10. Where would TV go? Well, I put TV up front right after the, the groundbreaking of the Astrodome. And then, as you said, uh, when the chapters are divided by months, it's very easy to then pigeonhole uh, the Mets in the June chapter or the Cult 45s in the March chapter because you can talk about spring training, talk about what the Mets were doing in June. And by the time you're done with that template, it's just a matter of selection, what to leave in, what to leave out. Uh, the editor wanted me to cut a tremendous amount so he made that decision for me because I cut about 65, 70 pages from the final draft. Right. How do you, how do you balance? Because I know there's going to be some, you're, you're sort of, you know, and not to put, not to sort of repeat the previous question, but rather to put sort of a pinhead on it, you know, you're, you're wading into a very large pool. So, yeah. so was there a topic on either side where you thought, you know, I know that like a cultural historian, and we're going to say somebody that's more on the cultural side of things, they're buying this book for the cultural months. All right. Right. They're there. Where, what was the cutoff topic? The first cutting room floor topic that you knew, oh, I'm going to take some heat for this, but I got to get the baseball stuff in. And the first baseball topic that you had to slice off that you just knew that George will was going to be blowing your phone up. Not that he's blowing your phone up, but you know what I mean? Uh, like well, somebody's going to be, you know, like, can you give me an example of a topic that couldn't, well, couldn't make it music? I, mm. I could not get the Beatles and the beach boys in there. They both debuted that year and the book would have been 500 pages. Right. So I had to acknowledge it. Uh, Johnny Carson was another one. He became the host of the tonight show that year. And for younger listeners who might not know Carson's name or might have heard it in passing, he hosted The Tonight Show for 30 years, from 62 to 92. That's an incredible journey. As far as baseball, 
the biographies, when you're reading the chapter on the Mets or the Colt 45s, Giants, Dodgers, Yankees, just remember that there was so much more about these folks' biographies that I could have put it, could have put in and did put in initially. But I either um going to regurgitate what you already know about people like Mickey Mantle, or it's just more of the same. Do you want to talk about every single year that someone was in the minors? before he became a major league player. Well, that's, uh, and, and speaking to that too, you know, baseball, I will I, and I'll vouch for you here, you know, so much has been written about baseball in the 50s, 40s and 50s, right? right? This was, you know, it's been written about to death. Just watch Ken Burns baseball. It's just right. written about to death. And then you get to the, to the 90s and it's written about, it's journalized about to death. Right. You know, there is this era of baseball in the 60s where expansion, there's almost, it's, there's almost like, um, there's uh, the storyline is the game itself as opposed to the right. players or teams. And I, I agree with you. I think this is a difficult era and I credit you for it. It's a difficult right. era to write about because there's, you know, in the 40s and 50s and, and by the time you get to the 90s, the storylines have been writing themselves for some time. Right. Now you have teams like the Colt 45s, like the Mets, where the stories aren't really written yet. You know, we haven't gotten to the Miracle Mets yet. We haven't right. gotten to the, I, I don't think, I, and I'm, I, my ears are getting mixed up here, but we haven't gotten to the historically bad. Is this the historically bad, to the 42 and 120? Okay, this is the 42 and 120. 40, 40 120, yeah. So, I mean, like, you're, you're just writing these stories as they go. And, and I'll vouch for you, that's a challenge. And, and, I, and I applaud you for it. Thank you. Well, I, I got some heat from from a, a one of these uh, reviewers on on Amazon because <laughs> see that's I, that's all you need. And reviewer on Amazon, that's all you got to say there. <laughs> Amazon or Goodreads, one of them. And I he he was upset that I focused on Bo Belinsky's life after sixty two, but Bo Belinsky's life is interesting because he pitched a no hitter as a rookie. He had a 28-51 lifetime major league career record. He bounced around the minors. That's not interesting to me. What jumps out is engaged to maybe Van Doren. He's dating starlets. He had problems with alcohol. He had three marriages that failed and winds up in the last few years of his life in Las Vegas, which is not a great city if you're trying to overcome an addiction. Right. But he found a home with this car dealership and this ex-UNLV football player. And I described the relationship. Bo was older than him, and he still looked up to him as a father figure. And he found stability. Now, were the I, I couldn't really get into the uh, whether he was repairing the estrangement with children or ex-wives or so forth, because I didn't get that far. But... It was very interesting to me to talk about the the uh, relationships that he had and that these folks didn't recognize the bow that they'd heard about. They didn't know the guy who was boozing or carousing. And he, here's a guy who you can say, well, he, he destroyed his life with alcohol. But, you know, I'm, I'm living in northern New Jersey. I grew up about five minutes from where the Four Seasons played in that bowling alley lounge and they got the name 
the Four Seasons from the name of that lounge. And there's a point in that play, Adam, where one of the band members says to the audience, we would get 30, 40 phone numbers on cocktail napkins a night from women who wanted to sleep with us. You go sell 20 million albums. You see how you handle it. Well, it's the same thing with Bo. This guy grew up in Trenton, which was not an easy uh, city to grow up in, in in the 50s. It's not an easy city to grow up in now. <laughs> right. And, and you and other other kids are playing American Legion ball, the Pony Leagues. He's in pool halls. He's shooting pool with guys named Cincinnati Phil. Okay. This is not an ideal teenage lifestyle. This is not leaving it to Beaver. He bounced around the minors, bounced around the majors, and 26 years old, he's in Southern California. It might have been different if he was in Minneapolis or Detroit, but when you're in Southern California and you're with the Angels in the second year of existence, you go on the Sunset Strip, every bartender's pouring you drinks, everybody wants to buy you dinner, every woman wants to sleep with you. How can you shut all of that out. It's nearly impossible. Now, I'm not excusing his behavior. I wasn't there, but there's a context to it. And, you know, to be engaged to Mamie Van Doren, they would have been a celebrity power couple. They did not get married. Uh, but the journey of, of, of Bo Belinsky is so resonant. When you hear about people today who um, battle alcohol and, and go into recovery, they didn't have those programs really back then, not not to the extent they do now. And maybe his life would have changed. But he also knew, Adam, that that part of his life was over. Uh, a story that was told to me is Anne Margaret was appearing at one of the casinos and he had dated Anne Margaret back in the day. Hmm. And somebody said in this car dealership that he was working in, hey, Bo, are you going to see Anne Margaret? She's appearing down the street. And he said, that part of my life is over. So he he knew that he had screwed some things up. And I'm sure she would have been happy to see him. But he wanted to kind of put that behind him. And I thought that was more interesting than his 10 and 11 1962 record. You know, what's what's more interesting? The, the, the pinnacle of his career and then how he descended and came out from came back from it, in a sense, or play-by-play, excuse me, of the Angels games that he started. Yeah, and and I kind of want to, so that's an interesting point, because you said that his story was one of the more surprising ones in a lot of stories that you researched, but uh, for the, I want to bring it back to baseball for the moment, because... Because one of the things, because, you know, it's a baseball show. It's what I got to do. Now, one of the things that I wonder about when we go, when I, because I've spoken to a lot of authors who have written written pieces uh, or books about uh, particular eras in baseball history and how it relates to culture. Now, depending on what era that is, if you're in the 1940s, baseball is leading the way. It's a sort of a flag bearer for you know, important issues of the time is civil rights, integration, things of that nature. If you're in the, uh, if you're in the thirties, well, it's kind of lagging behind, you know, it's, it, it's, uh, or in even in, really any time before the forties, it's really lagging behind in that regard. 
And so I, I'm curious, how did you, as you researched and sort of wove the story together, what's your assessment of baseball's place? Obviously, it's important enough to use as a through line for the book, but in terms of how it led or was led uh, in terms of social progress, because the 1960s, we're talking civil rights. We're talking right. like the heat of uh, a lot of different important movements in the country. What What is your assessment on that? Well, my assessment, Adam, is this. The through line of the book and of the year 1962 is progress. This is when everything turned and baseball was just one significant part of it. You had Dodger Stadium. You had expansion in Houston. Well, what else is in Houston? The space program, the headquarters for NASA. So Houston is now elevated tremendously in terms of its notability, its fame, its burgeoning as a metropolis. You have a new state, or not a new stadium, but you have a new team in New York, finally. Minnesota, I think, too, right? Just the just the year Minnesota before. Minnesota and, and Washington got new teams in 61. Right. Washington got the second incarnation of the Senators, and Minnesota got the Twins. So the early 60s, especially 62, was a time when everything turned and really moved forward. You had John Glenn orbiting the Earth, first astronaut to do that. We're finally catching up to the Russians. Hollywood is breaking ground. Literature is breaking ground. So when people ask me about what was going on in 62, my one word answer is progress. And to have baseball uh, be a part of that, beyond the things that we just talked about, Maury Wills opening up the game, 104 stolen bases. That's just incredible. That is absolutely incredible. And a new ballpark, which looks fantastic on television was, I, I, I think it even looks modern today. It doesn't mm-hmm. look dated at all. So imagine being in 62 and seeing that either in person or on the screen. And that LA now has a brand new ballpark because the Coliseum had been around for decades. Right. But this was a ballpark. This was not something that had to be converted. I mean, 90,000 people went to a game when the Dodgers first got to town. Uh, 90,000, that's incredible. Right. But here was, here was a baseball-only ballpark. So things were shifting, and baseball, I, I don't think it led or was led. I think it was just a part of the zeitgeist that we were moving forward as a country. Interesting. And, you know, uh, I, um, uh, what, one, last, uh, one last question for you, because I think that's, that's really – it's interesting to always hear – people's assessment of, of baseball's place within a time frame, And, you know, because it is such a part of the zeitgeist and it's such yeah. a part of the culture, I would argue that's maybe not the case today. So it, it's always interesting to, to hear historical perspective on, on the role that it plays in, in shaping and, and moving culture along. But um, I wanted to ask you about uh, if you hoped, if you get stopped on the street. Somebody says, I know you, you're David Krell. You wrote that book about 1962. And I remember what's the story you hope they tell you a story in the book, in the book. What's the, I remember what's the, what's the number, what's the, I mean, you, you, you're glad they remember the book, but what's the one thing you hope that they pick out of there? 
Wow, that's a great question, Adam. I would say the Bo Belinsky story. Mm -hmm. There were five no-hitters that year. If I talked about Jack Kralik or Bill Monbouquet, I don't think anyone's really going to I don't think those stories would stand out. They were great pitchers and they had great days, but the Belinsky story was really a, an eye-opener for me to talk to people who knew him and not just rely on newspaper accounts. It was incredibly important for me as a researcher, as an author, and I learned so much from those people who shared their experiences with Bo. Right. Well, that's uh, and honestly, uh, that's a that's a story. I I think that whenever you get one of those, you latch on to it yeah. as an author. And and I, there's always one. I've asked that question to a few authors, and it takes a little egging on to get out of it. But there's always one story when you write a book like that that you really hope yeah. people take away from it. And and that's the thing you want to take away. So um, it, you know. I really uh, that's uh, I really appreciate you coming on and talking about this book because it is important. It is you know part of the part of the games culture and part of the part of the history of the country. So Absolutely. I appreciate you uh, coming on talking about it. Um, the uh, David Krell, the book is 1962 Baseball and America in the Time of JFK. Thank you so much. Thank you, Adam. 